Want to exhibit your work? BFF doesn't exist without artists. BFF will help you get in contact with neighborhood businesses and spaces and guide you through any other help you need. Start the conversation at BFFOmaha.org. BFF is dedicated to supporting the region's emerging and established artists by creating opportunity, exposure, and experiences that help them move forward while enriching the cultural competency of the greater Omaha area. BFF to the arts, BFF to the community, BFF. Welcome back to Riverside Chats. I am Tom Noblock. We're back with a new episode. We are sort of rounding out our series, exploring your congressional candidates uh, to be in the House to represent uh, to represent Nebraska. And so we've we're not really like a partisan show. The idea isn't that we're necessarily endorsing any candidates, but I think a conversation with everybody interested in representing you, if you're in this area or you know near this area. Who, who wants to be, you know, who wants to go to the House of Representatives is a pretty big question. Who are they as people, not just what's their platform? And so we previously had episodes with Kara Eastman. We've had an episode with Ann Ashford. Now we've got Morgan Freeman on the show today. And she talks about her idea of democracy, essentially. So she keeps talking about this idea where it's her priority, her theory of governing would be the priority is as a public servant, what the people want is more important than what the candidate wants. The candidate should want to represent the people more than pushing a personal agenda. And I told her, I, I think you don't really hear that often. And that's actually kind of a radical idea. And she told, I asked her, what, what do you call this movement? And she said, democracy. And uh, kind of hard to argue with that. It is a very democratic concept. She's interested in that. And I think having a primary in general is a democratic concept. It's healthy for democracy, for people to have a plethora of opinions, a plethora of candidates, so they can pick the one that represents them the best. And so... I'm happy we've been able to have all these different conversations. Morgan is an incredibly interesting person. She's had all sorts of life experiences that draw sort of a different perspective than what we have representing uh, the can- uh, our, our district right now. And I'm happy to have had the chance to talk to her. So this conversation here with Morgan, I'll get to in just one second. But I have one quick thing I want to ask of you, which is there are no official announcements here, but it's looking like Riverside Chats is likely going to end up as a radio show. Uh, that's not to say that the full conversations will go away, but they may also be edited down for an hour-long radio conversation. So I'm just going to ask you guys, if you like this show, there are a couple ways you can support it. So if you've listened to the backlog or if this is the first time you're listening, a couple quick things, then I'll get to the conversation. Don't worry, it won't take that long. Please leave us a review on iTunes if you support this show. It really means a lot. It helps us get the show out to other people. It helps it pop up for others in suggested podcasts. Another way that's newer, and I don't have an official announcement for you yet, but one is kind of on the horizon, is if you really like this show, if you're in the Midwest, or even if you're not in the Midwest and you think it's worthwhile to have this sort of cultural exploration of the Midwest, maybe recommend to your public radio station that you'd like to hear Riverside Chats on it. There's a good chance it'll be on one pretty soon here. Uh, no reason why it can't be on several. So that's my favorite ask of you. So if you support what we're doing, you've got a couple ways to support us. But I know you're not here for me to beg for anything. You're here for a conversation with Morgan Freeman. So here it is, my conversation with Morgan Freeman, talking about her, her bid to represent you if you're in our district or just to be in Congress with a radical new notion that she calls democracy. Please enjoy. page for the account and so i've got this quote here that i actually want to start with because i think it's uh, a nice tone setter so it says i don't remember the last time i saw a politician who listened more than they preached talking points who represented their entire district rather than just the people they agreed with and who truly dedicated themselves to their community when the campaign ended the cameras had gone and the money had stopped flooding to their inboxes so is that basically the mission statement then um that's the mission statement of just in general, the movement of progressive and grassroots organizing applied to politics right. is really just finally getting to a space where we have a kind of democracy that we've always needed and wanted. And honestly, I think it's like a grassroots mantra. I don't think I saw it articulated, but it's just pulling all of these really fantastic principles into one 
one campaign that can also spark other campaigns that can lead to the kind of movement work that we need mm-hmm. in order to have a democracy that's not going to fall into fascism and it's not going to fall into um, this huge swing that we have between person um, different extremes on the person uh, scale every time that we have someone new in office. Well, and so that it seems like you've been certainly no stranger to movements to sort of like uh, whether it's just being politically active in general, right? Like you've been doing that for a while. So I'm curious. A little bit. A little bit. Well, it's like I'm always curious because it seems like maybe it just comes from, I don't know, a position of privilege to even have this opinion, but it's like it seems like a lot of people at some point there's some click for them where they actually understand the sort of political mechanisms that make things happen in the world. And once you can see that, you can't unsee that. And then it's hard not to act a little bit differently, whether that's actively getting involved or not. For you, was there some big moment or was it just sort of a lot of things piling on each other? I think you made a great point because there's never just one moment. There's a constant reawakening and a constant uh, crisis of conscience in figuring out where does that line fall with this new reality that I'm being confronted with. And so, I mean, I'm a young black woman in Nebraska, so... (laughs) Technically, my entire life has been um, an awakening, but for me, the real pivot point was when uh, Michael Brown was murdered, because I was working at Union Pacific, and um, (laughs) it was a couple of days after, in fact, two days after he was murdered, that I showed up to work that day, and I had no idea what happened until I was getting coffee in the morning. Um, And by the end of that week, I had over 80 people stop by my desk to ask me, on behalf of all black people, um, how do I feel about this young black boy that had been murdered? And just the evolution of that day, the evolution of how those conversations grew in intensity and also grew in expectation of what individual identities I'm representing in that conversation kind of caused an awakening of... Um, I'm trying to figure out the best way to phrase this, but more than anything, it caused an awakening of everything that I carry every time that I leave the house. That's an interesting point, just that you being asked just to represent like four black people, what what does this mean? I guess I never even really thought of it in those terms, but it's like a lot of times, even in regular life, people are asked to represent whatever their community might be. So, I mean, that representation is not unique to politics necessarily or unique to being in office. So, I mean, is that something that's been common for you, having to represent a certain community or a black community to people in Omaha? Has that happened a lot in your life? I think we're forced into that role whether we choose it or not. Right. Um, and I've realized that as our political landscape has become more and more tense and divisive, um, that it's becoming even more so of a necessity in these spaces. To have representative, like people who represent no, the community? that we or? show up as as each individual identity every time that we go out into spaces. So if I'm sitting down with a um, small-town Nebraskan Trump supporter who um, is deeply Catholic and um, white, married, couple of kids, like him bringing all those identities to that conversation is super important, as well as me bringing all of my identities to that conversation because that's how we start to build those bridges. Mm Um, and I think that's the part that's been missing with a lot of these political conversations is because as much as, <laughs> let's be real, like as much as um, I recognize how drastically important systemic changes and, st- and dismantling structural racism and dismantling all these really bad systems that have been in place since our country's evolution, we can't actually do that work if we're going to infringe on the individual rights or liberties of any American, period. And you can't fully see that until you're sitting down with someone who the world says you shouldn't like and who the world says you have nothing in common with. And five minutes into the conversation, you agree on gun control, you agree on immigration, you agree on health care. Who would have thunk it? (laughs) It's because... What I've realized in a lot of the community organizing work that I've done since being activated by Michael Brown's death, we're all in this for the same reason. And part of it is that we have partisanship that has shaped how we understand those things. 
and has created divides that aren't really there when we sit down and we just talk to each other. I mean, do you think that a lot of the big problems in current Congress, like it seems like a lot of people feel like they're not really being represented with the way legislation is going. Yeah. And it seems like it's it's hard not to say that the amount of money in politics is part of that reason, where it's like you're maybe representing special interest groups more than you're representing your constituencies. Right. So, I mean, like, at a certain point, I'm skeptical that everybody is in this for the same reason to begin with. You know, it's like some of the politicians out there uh, don't seem to care that much. Like, I, when I, I guess I'm bringing this yeah. back to your sort of mission here, where it's like someone, a politician actually listens yeah. to the people, not to just who has the money. Yeah. seems like that's a change that would be more democratic in general, that everybody can kind of agree on, yeah. but not in everyone, <laughs> yeah, like in theory. But then you have, you know, these blocks like partisanship where it's like, yeah. I'm not, it's like what you're saying, like I'm, some people are like, I'm not going to listen to you because you're whatever party that's not my party. Yeah. So even if I agree with your message, I still won't vote for you. Yeah. What like you, someone can be like totally pro universal health care, but that Medicare for all thing, right. I'm not sure about that. And I, what I've realized is that, Let's be real. Like it's, we have people that are in office and in all levels of government that aren't in it because they actually want to represent the people. They're in it because they um, are political wonks and they mm-hmm. uh, come from a political family or they come from um, a political environment and they just think that's their next evolutionary step. Or we have people that are in it because they want the money that's associated with it because. Let's be real. To run a congressional campaign, you have to raise at least $1 million. Imagine, like, uh, this is a total sidebar, but imagine what we could do just here in this city with $1 million. An instant influx of $1 million within one year. We could solve a lot of our homelessness. We could definitely, definitely do something about our youth homelessness. We could make sure that people are uh, that are low income have fully stocked pantries throughout this really rough winter that we're going to have we could address climate change right here in our community uh, we could do so much with just the amount of money that we're investing in this one race and money is a huge huge aspect of the corruption that's in our pol- political system and there are many people that go into it for the financial gain but on top of all of that, when was the last time you saw a political representative that truly waited until they got the feedback from the community before they built their policy agenda, before they built their platform, before they even started to develop what are they going to champion when they get to Washington, that actually went into a, an elected office with the intent to be a public servant rather than being a career politician? Well, I mean, that's that's the job description, technically. It's what it should be. It's right. I mean, <laughs> but I mean, I, I feel like you run into roadblocks with parties at a lot of times with that, where it's like yep. to be elected, you're expected to sort of, in some cases, just carry out the party vision, yep. which doesn't seem especially democratic, doesn't seem to really represent constituents. Yeah. So like, how do you square that with the, the sort of problems you might run into where it's like, is independent thought really valued by the time you get to Congress is a question I ask myself sometimes. Well, at the end of the day, it depends on who you are holding yourself accountable to. And if you're holding yourself accountable to the people of your district, that means that you're holding yourself accountable to people regardless of their their party affiliation. Um, and I think or one of the things I've realized since I started this run in this campaign is how much people expect um, party affiliation to guide everything that you do as a candidate um, and as someone that I left the Democratic Party because I hated the the um, infighting and the structural racism and honestly like like you said in the quote how these Democratic candidates come into a community and then dip as soon as the election cycle is over and they'll come back for the next election cycle make a lot of promises that won't actually get done until the next election cycle um and repeating that process is just such a frustration for me but and also for so many people in our community and when it comes time to really doing something about like trying to change our system you have to do it outside of the outside of any expectation of party support does that mean that the constituency at some point needs to 
break away from that party barrier to, you know, just like there's that dichotomy that everyone looks at where it's like you're either a Republican or a Democrat. And yeah. it's like it, we don't want it to be that much more complicated than that, or at least that's the way it's sort of being painted. So, I mean, does do you sort of have to get the community to think in a broader sense for that to work, though? Yeah, you have to you have to remarket or rebrand um, politics in their own minds outside of um either or and outside mm-hmm. of that dichotomy and that binary and what I've realized in a lot of the doors I've knocked and the conversations that I've had is it's not as hard of a jump as we would have imagined it to be because there are so many people in our community that are frustrated with how both parties have not responded to the individual needs of many people in our community they haven't created solutions for um, tax reform that are really reasonable for the people in the community. They haven't created um, structures for infrastructure development. They haven't, they've created job plans, but the job plans fall short, or um, they try to do a Paris climate agreement and somehow it falls short. And um, what we're noticing as constituents, but also as activists, as policy wonks as people that are also working around these individual representatives is that it always falls short and it stops right there. It stops with the people that are in office and aren't making these decisions based on what the people actually need. And the only way that we actually start to get towards a community and towards a democracy outside of what we have today is if we have people that are not going to rely on on party support. And so, I mean, that makes me kind of want to know your story a little bit more. So, I mean, taking a step back, I know you've had various uh, sort of political, you know, you've done a lot in terms of like in the political world, you know, from what you can hear. But like, what was the point when you decided to leave the Democratic Party originally? It wasn't a, it wasn't anything other than a frustration with um, how, a personal frustration as a constituent with how the party was being run. And it wasn't even necessarily at any one level of the party. Um, I saw things that were happening on the county level that were happening in the national level. Mm. And I saw populations that didn't feel represented and had continuously felt alienated or worse manipulated um, generation after generation. And it got marginally better, but not really. And so when the Libertarian Party actually chose to include sex workers, it's the only major party that's ever included sex workers into a a party platform, I signed on. Mm -hmm. And it was a really great learning experience for me to be able to see it from their frame of reference and to have these conversations and to delve deep into um, different agendas and different policy issues from different perspectives really allowed me to see the entire country in a new light and to see how we could save it. So you sort of got inspired that it's like, I can help fix this. I can steer it in the right direction. Yeah. And that's sort of the reason to come jump back into Democratic Party in some ways. Yeah. Um, okay. It was a lot of, honestly, it was a lot of reasons. Um, I've had, over the past five years, I've had several people that have asked me to run for office and um, I was actually having a conversation shortly after the 2018 election about how frustrated we are as marginalized communities um, having to choose between two evils. And like a, eh, okay candidate, or a, oh, he's terrible candidate. <laughs> and um, it was the same thing in the congressional race it was the same thing on a local race it was the same thing in the presidential race and the only way that things get better is if you start to have candidates that are running not necessarily because on um, like a specific policy agenda but they're running to actually represent and include the people throughout the throughout the whole um, legislation process so from the moment that you determine what your platform and what your agenda will be throughout that process, getting feedback and engagement so that they feel that this is something that 
you are actually creating for them rather than something you're creating for yourself or for some other party. But you weren't, was that scary though when people say you should run for office because then. Oh, it's terrifying. Yeah, because the logistics of that are huge. And, like <laughs> it's, a, it's an uphill struggle, I'm sure, to it try is. to have your vision for it. It is. Um, when I sat down and I talked to my partner about running for office, he had this look on his face of, well, I knew this day was coming, but <laughs> not quite so soon. Um, it's it's a challenge. Um, and it's not a challenge because of the people, because the people of this community are fantastic. Like, the people of this district are amazing. It's not even a challenge because of the work, because the work is fulfilling. It's a challenge because of running a campaign that is so outside of the bounds of how typical campaigns are run. Um, I'm constantly having to help people renegotiate their expectations and constituents and voters are ready and willing to have that conversation. They're already there, but party people or like typical policy people, they're struggling to get it Mm -hmm. because we have been told there's only one way that things can be run and that there's only one way that things can win and that there's only one thing, one way that things can make change or that people or campaigns or movements can make change. And I'm asking them to envision a different reality. And to do that, is it sort of just that door-to-door, talk to people, get the message out, hope word-of-mouth spreads? Or, I mean, how do you change the paradigm as far as that goes? It's, yes, getting the word out is vital to it, but also making sure that we're having constant conversations in as many ways that are meeting people where they're at rather than expecting them to come to us. Okay, that makes and sense. And so, and that's that's a fundamental piece of grassroots organizing is you go to where the people are and you make and you try to do what you can to make them feel seen and heard in the spaces that they traditionally occupy rather than forcing them to come to you. Do you have uh, specific political idols that you like to draw sort of either ideological ideas or strategies or even wording from? Yeah, um, so one of the books that finally pushed me over the edge into running for office uh, was written by Adrian Marie Brown, and it specifically dives into grassroots organizing and systemic change. Like, okay, cool, like, we all want to make change the world, we want to make the world a better place, but it's also hard to figure out, like, how do we collectively do that, and mm-hmm. how do we collectively do that in authentic ways? And the book is called Emergent Strategy, um, and it dives into that concept. It includes in um, facilitation tools. It includes in different ways of envisioning social progress and social change, um, but also envisioning liberation for the self, for the community, and for the nation. And it's so empowering. Like I ended up, uh, I was request, I was a uh, sent to me by a friend and 15 minutes into the book I called my friend and I was almost crying because it was just so amazing to feel so completely and totally seen and to feel like this thing that I've been working towards building a better world building a better community building a better Nebraska could happen and is right in front of my hands if I just reach out to grab it and help other people along in that process. So you said this was the sort of, this pushed you over the edge. Yeah, You committed did. after that. It did. What it were really you doing did. at that point? I mean, was this, what year did you read that one? January. This January. Okay, so yeah. this January. So you'd already been politically involved in a lot of ways, but yeah. this was like, okay, I have to run for something. Yeah, and not just something. I had to run for this. For this, um, okay. I think that we are in, I think we're in a state of emergency. If we don't have... Someone in office, especially this office, that's going to actually represent the people in the next two years. The next two years are pivotal. We need to immediately address climate change. We need to immediately address immigration. We need to immediately address the the ridiculous expansion of executive power that Trump is continuously using to his advantage and is absolutely destroying the checks and balances system that our entire government is based on. Like, we need somebody in office that's going to put that check back in place and is going to make sure that we're strengthening our democracy rather than pushing it further and further towards an authoritarian state. Yeah, or signing uh, loyalty pledges, yeah. for example. 
oh my gosh i don't i just uh i try to avoid twitter as much as possible but every time i get on it's like oh guess what the president just did now yeah do you get those push notifications oh, about whatever's so going on bad. in the news yeah so bad i know it's but like you, you gotta look it's like i gotta see what's happening though yeah and even for people like i understand that there are people out there that actually do like trump and I understand that he has a persuasive message for some, and I can even to some degree understand why his message is persuasive to them. However, if you love this country, if you love our republic, if you want to preserve this concept of American dream, we have to get somebody in office that's not going to continue this trend of expanding executive power because there will be no potential for a democratic republic after this. Right. It's, I, I really didn't realize, I think, until the last couple of years how it basically is okay for a lot of people to essentially have four-year monarchy. Like, yeah. they're cool with that. I, I guess I thought that everybody was kind of like, ultimately would not support something like that if it ever happened. But it's like, well, if that's our guy, I guess, yeah, give him unlimited power for this term. Hopefully just oh, for, you know, goodness. like the elected term. I don't know what that leads to, but it's like... You would think, I mean, you know, you heard a lot of pushback, you know, it's like during the Obama presidency, it's like he's abusing mm-hmm. the executive power, you know, mm-hmm. the executive uh, privilege in whatever way. But now it's like, you don't really hear any of that. So I guess it's just so long as it's our guy, it's okay, seems yep. to be the message, yeah. which is terrifying in a lot of ways, because it's like, oh, so we don't actually have standards uh, yeah. for what power needs to be, or it's just sort of who is wielding it that we're either mad about or cool with. Yep. Yeah. It's It's been pretty interesting to watch, because... I mean, there are many fair critiques of Obama and his administration and some of the things that they did, um, especially his foreign policy, because his foreign policy was terrible. Um, But to see the absolute lack of that same criticism, even from constitutionalists and other libertarians or other people that are all about protecting our democracy is just fascinating. Yeah, fascinating in kind of a scary way. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so, I mean, if you in what are all the political movements that you'd sort of been associated with before this, uh, before deciding to run for office? Oh gosh, um, I couldn't even name them all. <laughs> what but, are some of the big um, ones? Some yeah. of the big ones are I was involved with um, local education around Black Lives Matter and organizing around Black Lives Matter. Um, as in, like, bringing it to Omaha specifically, bringing it to Nebraska? Or, or just educating the Nebraska public on it, and um, especially people that may not have a direct tie to Black Lives Matter or to black liberation movements in general. Mm-hmm. So, like, hey, this is what the movement's about. This is where it started. Here's how you can get involved in general to, like, advance better opportunities for black lives. And also, you know, policing reform, which also leads to criminal justice reform, which leads to general economic, social, and political advancement of black people. Um, I was also a part of the Omaha Women's March. Um, I spoke at the first one, um, and I gave a speech on intersectional feminism and um, helped organize the speaker cafe for the second Women's March. Um, I've also, I've I've tried to, as much as possible, kind of, connect people to other resources and so if I know someone's a really great um, filmographer like connecting them to um, maybe like a youth project that's just like delving into film Mm -hmm. or um, like organizing an event like connecting really great leaders within our community that wouldn't normally have access to a space like the chamber and being able to say hey have you considered x y and z person they're a really, really dope civic advocate here, and we should really have them. Or supporting like black-owned businesses or women-owned businesses. Being able to be that connector in a lot of the spaces that have higher barriers for access has been really important, not just for me, but like for people in the community to be able to, to be in these spaces and to move about freely. When you were younger, did you ever think that you'd be in this sort of position, doing God, all this no, stuff? No, no, no. What'd you, what, what were your thoughts when you were a kid? I, well... For the majority of my childhood, I thought I was going to be an astronaut. Okay. Yeah. And there was a period where I decided I wanted to be a fashion designer because I really loved clothes and 
uh, it's actually really funny because now all I wear is jeans and t-shirts. <laughs> but I was I was always dressed up and wearing heels to school <laughs> and just all of this. It's a little wild. How'd that go over? Um, about as much as you expect. <laughs> um, it was really funny. I actually have my 10-year reunion. I think it's this weekend. Um, or five-year. Ten-year. Wait, ten-year. It's, oh my God, it's ten years. <laughs> Uh, um, <laughs> but I used to walk around my high school in heels and I'd like change from like this really pretty dress and makeup and heels into my track uniform and then go back to really pretty dress and heels. And then would you, would you dress nice whenever you went out to hang out with friends and everything too? Oh yeah. yeah. I didn't really, I was a loner. Oh really? Yeah. You seem so extroverted and like go get her. Oh God, no. no? I'm, okay. Uh, so I did a little bit of research and I was listening to your, your episode with Megan Hunt. And yeah. Like, the same kind of thing here. Yeah. Yeah. She, she and I had bonded over being so, <laughs> so introverted. Oh, it's bad. I'm a extroverted introvert. Um, okay. Define that for me. I can be extroverted and I can fake it really, really well, yeah. but given the choice, I'd rather just be at home with my really adorable puppy <laughs> and my cat working on like a piece of policy or like watching Sabrina or something like that. I, well, I, I mean, I relate to that too, even though like I host this podcast, I still, I don't feel like an extroverted person. Um, but it's weird how introverted people sometimes do get drawn into these situations where it's like, in order to do anything I want to do, I have to figure out how to talk or present myself in a certain way and do all these things that we assume come easily to extroverted people. I don't actually really know, but so I mean, at some point you decided, okay, I need to get the skills of an extrovert, even if I'm not actually one on the inside. Actually, I can trace it back very easily. Um, So I went to Bellevue West, um, and I was involved for all four years in FBLA, Future Business Leaders of America. Mm -hmm. And my FBLA advisor told me one day, and I think it was like sophomore or junior year, and she said, you're going to do extemporaneous uh, speech competition for like our state like competition and I did so well that I went to nationals in it nice which was shocking to everyone (laughs) because up until then I was very much not a social person I kind of kept to myself I spoke up only when I felt I had to and uh or in class because I was a little bit of a know-it-all and um that was basically it. And it was my first time really having to push myself outside of my comfort zone and out of my shell. Do you remember that first time you were preparing for an extemp speech, like walking over to give it? Oh, um, yeah. I remember it was our state leadership conference. They had just given us the topic. And we, I think, if I remember correctly, you had to like pick it out of like a hat or yep, something. Yeah, there's usually three or so. Yeah. It's like a fortune cookie, like yeah. a fortune from a fortune cookie exactly. almost. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so I picked mine out. I'm like, as soon as I started unfolding it, I'm like, I picked the wrong one. <laughs> and it was something on like the national budget. And in my mind, I'm like, I have no idea how to answer any of this question. And I don't think they let us use. Yeah, they didn't let us use anything. Like Not at all? We couldn't research. We just really? had to like go. That's so much. Like, when I did it. We would have this hit. We had a big bucket with like thousands of magazines in it, and so you could dig around and try oh, to figure no. it out. No, you would have. No. To... We had ten minutes to write a speech. It okay. was like a three to five minute speech on the topic. Yeah, and how did it and go? Then present. Did you write the full speech, or was it like an outline of a it speech? It was an outline. Okay. And I just bullshitted my way through it. <laughs> but you realize you can do that. That's, yeah. That's the magic of extemp because it's like, oh whoa, I I guess. Like, they're not necessarily complete experts. It's not like I'm talking to somebody who is going to know every detail. So I just need to be convincing enough and, like, know just enough (laughs) to frame it realistically, and I can kind of get by. I feel like that might be the secret for all introverts to get extra, to seem extroverted, is do extemp speaking in some way. Yeah, definitely. Because it's the most terrifying experience that you'll ever have. But after that, I will say, like, that panel of like three judges or four judges was far harder to talk to than the thousands of people I spoke in front of at the women's march. <laughs> well, there's that added pressure of like they're there just to judge you, so You're it's like, like I'm not talking to a group who's not really paying attention. It's like no, no, they're listening to me. Yeah, yeah. Though it was a little scary because I was basically calling out white feminism um, in a room full of predominantly white women. Did that go over well? It went over so well. Nice. 
um, because I talked about Audre Lorde and I talked about um, just in general how like throughout all of our social movements as women we have tried to create progress but we've tried to do it in silos and the only way that we create the kind of progress that we need for all women regardless of um, whether they are cis or trans women or femme, ident- uh, uh, femme identified or um, if they're black or white or whatever racial or ethnicity identity is if we're working towards that eventuality we have to do it together and we cannot like hold one identity higher than the other we have to do it in the same and equitable ways so you were reading lord in high school no, I didn't no. even know about Audrey Lord until I got to college. college? It was okay. I had this beautiful black awakening in college. And um I mean, Bellevue West is a predominantly white institution. Um and I'd heard of Tony Morrison and I'd heard of other really amazing black authors, but I hadn't really read many of them. Mm-hmm. Um and sometime in the second time that I went to college, um I got on a social, or I found out about like a social, I think it was like a social theory class for like race and identity. Um, I was going to school at MCC. Okay. And, um, Did you know what you wanted to do at that point with it? No or it was idea. just like, yeah, school, I guess yeah, I'll kind of see what I'm interested like, in. I needed an elective and it was there. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, I'm black, so this is going to be easy. <laughs> and... It was the most trying semester that I've had um, probably throughout my entire college career. Like to comprehend what it was all saying? or No. Okay. It was, I spent every single day in class figuring out ways to build really well-crafted arguments. So I'd spend every, because <laughs> I spent the entire time arguing with my teacher. <laughs> So I would literally come to class with like a list of resources and I got, by the time that the semester ended, like I got to the point of just bringing handouts for me and the rest of the class for whatever I was going to argue. You're like, let me just teach today. Well, it's like, okay, cool. So we're talking about race, but you know, you can't talk about race from a patriarchal lens because you know, you're alienating black women. It was my first time like really doubling into feminism from um, a woman of color perspective and actually feminism in general and it was absolutely fascinating (laughs) like looking back to see that evolution throughout the year or well throughout the semester because I started the semester thinking like "Eh, racism is a thing but it doesn't really happen here to being like this is how this conversation right here is racist like everyone in our society has internalized racism or has internalized xenophobia or ageism or ableism or all these bad isms. Like we've all internalized them. I have. And you were getting that from the stuff you were reading in class and engaging with? No. Or you no, you're just noticing in it. My re- yeah, in my okay. research. And, okay. it, and because the class was just so confrontational because of my teacher and also some of the other students. I started to heavily prepare for every single day in in our conversations and being ready to have like an in-depth response that can negate some of the negative things that were happening. And so it was my first real time confronting directly like anti-blackness or directly confronting um, sexism or heterosexism or heteronormativity or any of that and your teacher was fostering that or were you antagonizing in some way oh I was totally antagonizing (laughs) okay he's actually a good friend of mine now which is a little ironic but yeah he was antagonizing um and I appreciate it so much because I don't think I would have gotten to the point that I got in my own education and honestly my own fire for like social justice and social progress if it had not been for that teacher well that's that's great i mean so then yeah. when you became friends was that after you became more politically active then yeah. you sort of like cross paths or did you reach we out cross paths all the time okay do like, you guys uh, all the time are you still antagonistic with each other no, do you come up with yeah, an argument for you know, <laughs> the teacher no yeah. we we agree on basically everything now oh okay it's kind of funny <laughs> so i i have a suspicion in my mind that like he's he was just that way because he wanted to to spark that kind of passion in his students, and so well, it worked then. If that was definitely that was worked. It. 
<laughs> definitely worked. Or at least that's the that's what I'm gonna tell myself is that he was that way because of that. Did you have to read any Baldwin in that class? Oh, uh, or did you no. just did you come across Baldwin at some point? Oh, I love because we talk about like the fire, you know. Oh, yeah. inside, you know, it makes me think of the fire next time. And yep. I yeah. love Baldwin. I think that book. He's so amazing. Fantastic. Um, James Walden is definitely one of my heroes, as is um, Audre Lorde, um, Toni Morrison, and a long list of other really fantastic black people throughout history. Um, and just in general, like I've, I've met a lot of really incredible people just here in our community that have dedicated their lives to making the community better. Um, but honestly, like the women in my family are amazing. Like, I am nothing in comparison to my grandmother. And to know that my grandmother was a, she's a taxi driver, she's a mother, single mother of nine children, and she had, like, three other jobs. And she did it all. That's crazy. And to be able to handle, like, the capacity of black women, especially during her age, to not just rise above, but to succeed... Um, I know that society may not see that as success, but like she raised nine children that all, <laughs> first of all, got to 18. <laughs> Only uh, one died when um, she technically had 10 children, one died early. Um, but other than that, she got nine children past 18. Um, I think all of them graduated high school. If not all of them, then almost all of them graduated high school. Um, my, uh, a couple of them went on to college. My mother graduated college. Um, and my mother is an amazing, amazing woman. She's strong-willed. She is passionate. She's intelligent. She's capable. She's empathetic. And she instilled in me like this absolute dedication to community service and helping others. What did she do to sort of set that example for you? It wasn't even necessarily one thing. It was just a norm in our household um, from, like, we would spend our weekends doing at least one form of community service, and I didn't even realize that's what we were doing. But uh, we'd go to church, and then afterwards we'd, like, drop off some clothes at Goodwill, or we would um, join a community cleanup event, or... um, We'd spend some time, like, volunteering. And I thought we were just, like, hanging out with people. (laughs) (laughs) Was it a political household growing up? No. Okay. No, not at all, actually. Did they talk about who they voted for, even? Did your mom talk about that at all? We talked about politics, but for the most part, it wasn't until Obama that I even really vividly remember us discussing politics. And it was actually something that my dad and I bonded over, um, I would wake up early in the morning, and he and I would go work out. My Both of my parents are veterans, and um, we would spend the morning at our workouts talking about what we saw on MSNBC before we went to, to bed at night. And then we'd come back and watch MSNBC or CNN mm-hmm. or whatever political show. And every Sunday, to my mom's ultimate frustration, was spent watching... Um, Oh, gosh, what is that called? Meet the Press. Okay, yeah. And So, I mean, politics were, you guys were aware of things. Yeah. You were educated, trying to stay, you know, in the loop, at least. Yeah, and it it came really aptly timed because um, the 2008 election, I was turning 18 in 2008, and um, it was the first time that I was really having to think intentionally about, okay, so where do I fall in the spectrum? Am I a Democrat? Am I a Republican? Am I an, an independent? And what does that actually mean? Mm-hmm. Um, in a political system and what will be required of me in educating myself but also like in supporting people on either side of the spectrum and if I ever want to run for politics will this ever like affect oh so that was in there at that point it was Um, I thought that one day I might want to run for an office but I hoped that I wouldn't need to and I hoped that somebody else that that it wouldn't have to be me. Right. I had hoped that I wouldn't have to step up to the plate because our community would have built all of these amazing pipelines and interns for other black women to step up to the plate and that it wouldn't have to be me. 
But I mean, you also knew you could do it. Like yeah, you have it I in knew you. I could, definitely knew I could do it. Definitely. It, knew and that you could do a good job with it, I guess. Not just yeah. that, like, yeah, I could take a check and yeah, deposit yeah. it. Yeah. Like, obviously, you could, you want to do the job too. In some in some part, though, like you you do want to have that ability to change things, right, and to yeah. be guiding it in a certain way. Yeah, yeah. I I spent the majority of my adult life trying to find other ways of changing our systems outside of actually serving in public office and finally came to the realization that the only way to make the change that we desperately need and arguably are in a space where we no longer have any choice over um, is by actively being engaged and by actively running for office and changing it as I do. Right. Well, uh, so do you know when it first occurred to you that you might have the capacity? Like, was it from doing like extemp speeches and then sort of like realizing you can educate yourself on real issues and talk about them and have opinions? Is that kind of where the seed was? Um, so my parents used to tell me that you can be anything in the world that you want to be. You can be an astronaut. You can be, um, a business mogul. You're going to be a millionaire by the time you're 40. Um, you can be literally anything you want to be except president. <laughs> oh, okay. Because they understood how much um, my safety would be at risk, and they did not want that for me. Um, and so I could, ha- I spent like the majority of my, my childhood like knowing that I could do it if I had to do it, um, but also knowing that like this is something that's going to be a huge ask of the people that I care about most. How old were you when they said that to you? Oh, I have no idea. Uh, as far back as I can remember. Was, um, did that? Every single conversation that we had about who do I want to be when I grew up and, and them giving me the feedback of you can be anything you want to be always came with that caveat did you ever have just that childhood rebellion though where it's like the one thing that they say i can't be is now the only thing i want to be uh well if you ask my parents this isn't a childhood rebellion (laughs) um but yeah i was i was definitely a strong-willed child sure yeah so uh, i will be president because you said i can't be right i just never i never really wanted to be president and even still to this day i like being president sounds terrible like why would you want to do that the amount of pressure and strain and um honestly like i think that there i would rather be a servant to a fantastic president than to serve in the office myself right yeah that makes and i'd sense. rather help build someone up that's going to be exponentially better at it than i am because i think i'm gonna be a fantastic congresswoman that's my place right yeah when they talk about like a woman's place, that's my place. Right. Yeah. I love, I've got this Megan Hunt poster here right behind it. She was giving out in uh, one of her oh campaign gosh. events. I love it. I know. Yeah. I should have made her sign it. I've, I've seen her a couple times at the event. It was like uh, some sort of campaign thing. Yeah. So you pay and then we get this. And I'm walking away and I'm like, why didn't I just get her to sign it? And then I had her literally in here and I was like, oh, I didn't get her to sign it. So I don't know. That's, I, I see like, that. But I like, I love it. But then I also think like, why, why am I not uh, showing that like it's Megan's, you know, by getting some part of her here. Yeah. I'll have to, like, mention that to you when I see her next. <laughs> so, okay, Congresswoman is your place, and that becomes sort of solidified even this year, sort of when you're like, okay, I got to yeah. figure out how to get there. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's It's been a, a process of having conversations and really very clearly seeing what the path is and being able to articulate that to other people and get and building a movement along the way mm-hmm. and building that kind of momentum is a constant process that's, that's why i've been working on you're not i mean it, it, you're willing to figure out like okay this will be difficult but you seem like someone who has sort of that mentality where it's like if i take on a task that i don't know how to do it i trust myself to figure out how to get there yeah i'm and it's not that i don't necessarily know how to do it i've volunteered for other campaigns before um i've been involved with um helping out with fundraisers like I've done fundraising professionally I've done communication work professionally um and so I have a lot of the tangible skills Mm. and transferable skills and I've been involved with other campaigns so it's not that I'm necessarily new to it as a whole I'm just new to it as a candidate 
Right. And as a candidate, like being in a lot of these spaces, I've come to see how a dirty politics is, but b like how desperately the community needs this change and is ready for this change. And so, I mean, do you get the sense then? So the change that you are offering is different from obviously it's a somewhat crowded primary right now. It's sort of happening. I mean, what is it that you've seen that makes it seem like you're uh, specific, what you're trying to sell to people here in Omaha or in Nebraska in this uh, district? What is it that tells you that that's the direction rather than sort of like the middle ground of Ann Ashford or Car Eastman's, you know, different sort of left of Ann Ashford positioning or anyone else's in the primary? Yeah. So the thing is, is that it's not on that spectrum. Like they're not picking a spot on the democratic scale and saying, oh, she falls there and I'm going to vote for her because she 100% agrees with me. Like being able to sit down with a far, far right Republican and sit down with a far left Democrat or Green Party person and being being able to like have that conversation about the issues that matter most to them. And honestly, there's this moment that happens every time that I sit down with a constituent when I say... I am running for office because I want to represent you and all I'm here for, I'm not asking for your vote yet. I'm not asking for money. All I'm asking for is for you to tell me what you care about and what you want me to fight for when I get, when I get to Washington. And there's this moment of, whoa, (laughs) (laughs) she actually cares. And my poor campaign manager, she's had to completely change my walk list because I spend 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour just talking to them about their lives and about what issues they feel we need to be focusing on when we get to Congress. And by the end of that conversation, I've not had a negative experience at all. That's amazing. I know. It's my. <laughs> Maybe that's a cynical thing of me to say. No, but, no, no. Uh... It is. My campaign manager is like, this is almost frustrating. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's actually really surprising because I I will sit down with people and we'll sit down and talk and at, by the end of the conversation they're like, how do I support you? How do I get involved? Like, how do I join your movement? What do you need? And how can I be a part of this? Because this is something that we need as a community. This is something I believe in. And I think that the others around me will. That's great. I mean, do you, do you feel though that that has to coalesce into some sort of specific platform though? I mean, that you'll mm-hmm. be okay. So, like, yeah. how do you balance that sort of always listening to the constituents and letting that shape your platform with actually having something specific to frame it all around? Well, I mean, at the end of the at the end of the year, we'll compile all this data and all this feedback, and then build a platform based on that. It's truly going to be one hundred percent informed on what are the what are the issues that um, the people of the community want us to champion? What are the priority levels of each of these issues? And then working with experts in each of these fields to make sure that we're building a tangible process to address these issues in ways that are just going to further strengthen our democracy and help our communities. So, I mean, where in the priority then? It, it's unusual to have somebody not trying to factor in like your own personal ideology or... Mm-hmm political element how does that play into like say the data is on a different side from where you personally would fall if it was just you how does that sort of merge it's it's literally i'm literally spending almost a year well actually a little over a year because the general is going to be in november a little over a year applying for a job Mm -hmm. how do you do that for any other job at the end of the day you do your job you do the job of representing the people. So at the end of the day, my personal agenda does not matter because I am there to represent the people. They are literally paying thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars for representatives that oftentimes just choose to do what they want to do, not what the people want them to do. Or what the highest bidder wants them to do. Or what the highest bidder wants them to do. Like, that's that's not my job. My job is to make sure that the people of the community feel that their representative is working for them, period. Well, and that's, I mean, 
in one way that's like a radical way to look at it another way that seems very much like a almost constitutionalist way to look at it like that's the like closer to the founding idea of having you know a house and a senate than most of what we see in history how dare i be a radical person that believes in the constitution (laughs) it's getting more and more radical it seems like Yeah, yeah yeah it's it's fascinating to me like the fact that I, I literally my my own platform right now is this is what a representative should be. Here's how we should be doing public service in Congress. And we need to make sure that we're protecting the individual rights and liberties of every single American while also correcting these systems of inequity, period. Right. And no matter who you are and where you fall on the spectrum, you're down for that. You want to make sure that the people of our community have the ability to live their lives without unfair restrictions, whether it's because of a system of inequity or because of new regulations that are unfair. Right. And do you have a name for the movement that you're trying to do here, or is it just <laughs> your? It's just you. It's democracy. It's democracy. Yeah, I guess it's that's true. Right. It's yeah. literally strengthening democracy. It's going back to this idea, like somehow this feels radical in 2019, but also it's the tradition that started the country. Like literally founding fathers. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's democracy. You're bringing democracy back. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or at least uh, trying to bring back the kind of democracy that we have always wanted where the people govern. Right. We the people. Yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> okay, one last thing I want to okay. ask you about here is, is it been difficult for you to share a name with a celebrity? <laughs> Sydney said that this would come up. Um, well, yeah, I've, I've told people, because like, this show is not strictly political, <laughs> yeah. so like, yeah, I'm talking to Morgan Freeman. They're like, oh, Morgan Freeman, like yeah. from, from Bruce Almighty? Like, no, no, different one. I'm really sorry that my voice isn't as cool as it is. <laughs> it's, um, well, it's different, you know. Yeah, it's a little different. I think my voice is pretty cool. It, yeah, it is cool. I think yeah. Nobody would expect you to have Morgan Freeman's voice, you know, the actor's yeah, voice. Yeah. So, you know. yeah, there's an extra and It's been interesting. Um, it actually wasn't really a thing until college. And <laughs> when I got to college, it was a thing that happened every day. And so it's basically been that way ever since. Um, <laughs> which is fascinating because I've, I've actually never seen Shawshank Redemption and my fiancé and I have this uh, agreement that... I refuse to watch Shawshank until, um, <laughs> either until we get married or until, as morbid as it sounds, like, you know how people watch movies when their favorite actor passes? Sure. Yeah. So <laughs> When Morgan Freeman, the actor, yeah, uh, passes. Yeah. yeah. So I figured, like, <laughs> that's going to be the best tribute that I could ever give him. That is true. Is your fiancé a fan of Shawshank? Yeah. Everybody's, yeah. apparently, it's a fantastic movie. You, that yeah, I'll you're just going to be watch. stubborn about it. Do you, are you think you're more <laughs> stubborn because of the name thing? <laughs> oh, it's yeah. totally because of the name thing. <laughs> like, because uh, that is the one movie that I always hear about. Like, people forget all about Bruce Almighty. Morgan Freeman has been president several times. Yep. Like every every year now he's president in some new movie. I mean, I kind of love it. Yeah. I kind of love it. But <laughs> one I mean, Morgan Freeman is president at least right now, so, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, some days I really wish he was president. <laughs> <laughs> then it, could, it could be you next maybe. You know? Oh gosh. Let's hope not. <laughs> but okay. Just Congress right just now. Just Congress, yeah. yeah. That's all I want to do. So what's a good note or a message that you want to end this on just for anybody listening, whether it's the first time they've heard about you or they're already following you? I want to hear from you. Um, So if you are just hearing about me or if you've known me for a long time, well, if you've known me for a long time, you already know. But um, I, I want to know what really matters to you. I want to know what issues you want me to champion. And feel free to reach out to me on our website. It's freemanforcongress.com. You can also reach out to me on social media, or you can also email me. It's really easy to remember. It's mo, M-O, at morganfreeman.com. Do you go by mo generally? It's a childhood nickname. Nickname, okay. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, actually, so my high school classmates can definitely attest to this, but I used to be known as Mo Free since um, that was what my license plate has said. <laughs> and I've had the same car since I was 16. And so... Seems like it fits with your whole, you know, message in general still. Yeah. 
I mean, uh, you will come to find out that I am the same person in every environment. What you see is what you get. And I believe in authenticity. I believe in social change. I believe in protecting our democracy. I believe in America. And I believe that our community deserves better and that we are the change that's going to make it happen because we're the change that we've been waiting for. Yeah, and I, I hope this democracy movement uh, catches on. And thanks so much oh, for yeah. being on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Riverside Chance is hosted by me, Tom Noblock. I produce the show along with Ben Matukowitz through our company, Xarbon Creative. We record in Studio 62, right in the heart of Benson at Pet Shop, BFF's headquarters. As I said in the intro, we absolutely appreciate it if you feel inclined to leave us a review on whatever your favorite podcast app is. Or, if you want us on the radio, go ahead and request it. Couldn't hurt. Means a lot to us. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another fascinating look at the people in Nebraska doing amazing things.